Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm talking with John Torpy about his overview of the eras of human civilization, entitled The Three Axial Ages, Moral, Material, Mental. John, welcome to the show. Thank you. Nice to be here. Well, it's nice to have you on. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself. Sure. I'm a professor of sociology and history at the City University of New York Graduate Center, which is the PhD granting part of the CUNY system. And I'm also director of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies, which focuses on a broad range of international issues, peacekeeping, international governance, and those sorts of issues. What was it that led you to write this particular book? Well, this book in some ways is rather personal. That is to say, I was a student of a guy named Robert Bella at the University of California, Berkeley, a long time ago now. Uh, And he had recently written a major work, the capstone really of his career, in fact, published not long before he died, um, about this thing called the Axial Age. And that's a discussion that's gotten a lot more traction lately, partially because of his book, but it's been around for a while. And the notion of the Axial Age comes from a German philosopher really named Karl Jaspers, uh, who wrote a book immediately after World War II called The Origin and Goal of History. And basically, it was a critique of Hegel's philosophy of history, which kind of culminated in European development. Jaspers was in so-called internal exile during the Nazi period. And in the aftermath of World War II, looking back on it, he didn't think that philosophy of history was terribly compelling. And so he set out to kind of shake up that sort of version of history um, and to suggest that there was a kind of uh, commonality that the major world civilizations, as he understood them, um, had uh, acquired in a period that he called the Axial Age, which was roughly a few centuries in the middle of the first millennium BCE when when Confucius, the Buddha, uh, the ancient Greek philosophers and tragedians, and uh, the Jewish prophets all lived and kind of left their mark on human history. And so the idea, in a way, was this kind of notion of a sort of cosmopolitan origin of what he thinks of as the beginning of our era. So uh, the Axial Age, uh, he said, gave birth to man as we know him today. Now, he said that, whatever, 70 years ago or so. Um, But what he meant was that the kind of moral and intellectual tools that we work with today came into existence during that period. And, you know, there was also this effort to... um, you know, provincialize Europe, so to speak, uh, a long time before others came along and wrote books with that kind of title. And it was an attempt to see a kind of common origin across the major world civilizations of China, India, the Middle East, uh, and uh, Greece as kind of, you know, an origin, one of the origins of the so-called West. So, Basically, that's what the original Axial Age, what I refer to as the moral Axial Age in the book. Um, And, you know, that has a certain compelling quality to it. It leaves parts of the world out. 
that haven't in in Jasper's view or didn't have you know uh, as much influence on the course of world history. Uh, but it seemed to me that it um, was not entirely compelling in the sense that you know the world has in certain ways moved on since this period. I mean, yes, intellectually, perhaps morally, one could talk about the kinds of resources that were generated during those middle centuries of the first millennium BCE, but uh, it didn't seemed to me to really help us understand how our age differed from that which had gone before. And it seemed to me that there were, you know, in a certain sense, two other eras that one might think of as axial in this sense. And one of them is basically the era that, you know, came into existence in the aftermath of the Industrial Revolution. So after 1750 or so, when, you know, humankind's capacity to produce uh, grows enormously. Uh, people become, you know, certainly on average, much wealthier than they had been. Basically, everybody had been poor, more or less, even including kings in certain ways uh, before that. And, you know, people ate less well, they were sicker, they didn't live as long. Uh, and I was really struck by, you know, many of those kinds of uh, aspects of the world that came into being after 1750. But then in the meantime, uh, more recently, one could perhaps date this to the 1970s. I argue that there's this, what I'm calling the mental axial age, that is a period in which new technologies that are, you know, virtual, artificial intelligence, you know, smart devices all over the place, um, you know, the analog world, if you like, is being replaced by a digital world. And this new world, I have to say, interests me a lot. Uh, you know, people have talked about getting rid of drudgery for a long time. In some ways, that's what our economy has been doing for the last more or less 300 years uh, is increasingly re replacing, you know, the drudgery that people had had to do with, uh, with you know, ways of taking care of these things by machines and, and now more recently by these electronically driven devices. So, you know, there's a lot of concern, of course, about things like technological unemployment. Uh, but this is, of course, an old uh, problem that, you know, goes back in our you know, typical retelling of these things to the Luddites at the very least. And there's this way in which, uh, you know, it seems like this is part and parcel of technological and economic change. And it may be that people are, you know, put out of certain kinds of jobs. But the research that I've seen so far suggests that you know, then we're not going to have, you know, mass unemployment of the kind that many people fear. I mean, I think it's a very interesting time in the sense that um, people are concerned about that problem. And uh, that has sort of promoted the discussion of what's called a universal basic income, uh, because some people like Elon Musk think that's the only way to forestall the kind of social unrest that is likely to occur with this mass technological employment. It's just not clear that that mass technological uh, unemployment is going to happen. I mean, right now, obviously, the uh, unemployment rate in the United States is under 4%. Um, you know, it's just not clear that tons and tons of people are being put out of work. We have an inequality problem. That's clearly the case. And we need to think harder, I think, about the tools that we're going to use to make sure that the prosperity that's being generated by the current 
technological transformation or the mental axial age uh, is widely and more evenly distributed. Everybody knows that CEO uh, salaries as compared to those of the average worker have increased dramatically over the last 30 or 40 years. And those are things that we need to attend to. But uh, at the same time, it's not clear that there's going to be all the kind of technological unemployment that a lot of people are talking about with uh, self-driving cars and self-driving trucks and those sorts of things. But it may just be that, you know, many of us no longer have to bother to drive ourselves somewhere. I mean, the other side of this is that we have to think about the, the fuel for doing these things. So one uh, way that I talk about these different uh, axial ages in the book is that, you know, the period after the original uh, moral axial age is one in which, you know, things are done with human and animal power, basically. Uh, and then uh, after 1750, the Industrial Revolution is obviously powered, so to speak, by fossil fuels. And we're now realizing that that has created a lot of blowback. And uh, I don't use the word crisis too much if I can avoid it, but it seems to be that we are in the midst of a major uh, ecological crisis and we have to think about new ways, smarter ways to power the activities that we engage in. And of course, a lot of the transformation that I'm talking about in this mental axial age is in fact about uh, figuring out so-called sustainable ways uh, of doing the things that we do in our lives. And of course, all of this depends all of these activities, all of these um, devices depend on electricity. So we need to generate electricity. Now things have gotten more and more efficient in recent years. So it's not necessarily an insurmountable problem, but we have to think about how we're going to generate all the electricity that, you know, powers these smart devices that we're using. Now, what you described is an incredibly wide span of time. And Yet what fascinates me is how much you fit into what is really a very compact book. And I'm not just talking about the fact that the book itself is uh, you know, roughly 100 pages and, 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 and you know, addresses it in that short of span. I, I, was, I was impressed particularly about how in your introduction on page five, you have a table which does a very nice job of distilling your argument down into uh, – into five columns and, or into five rows and, and, and four columns. It's <laughs> in the sense, uh, so, you know, what characterizes the differences in these ages? And I was wondering if we could maybe uh, just briefly return to each of these ages and, and kind of address them uh, separately to explain some of these distinctions. While you've gone over a lot of that, you have talked in your chart on that page, you talk about how, for example, uh, differences in attitudes towards material goods. You've already made references to the energy regime. We also talk about characteristic modes of thought. So I was wondering if we can maybe unpack it just a little bit by going over those key differences between the ages, starting with that moral age, which uh, given your description of Jasper's argument and what you write in the book, you're not necessarily disagreeing with him. You're, you're in effect using that as a springboard talking about the other two ages. Is that correct? I think that's exactly right. Um, I, you know, found this discussion of the axial age very interesting, but there are aspects of it, for example, that it, the way that it's framed leaves out Islam, 
leaves out Christianity. It leaves out, you know, some of the major developments that take place after these middle uh, centuries of the first millennium BC. So, um, uh, it seemed to me that that was sort of problematic to make this claim, as Jaspers does, that, you know, we, uh, man as we know him today is, I think, the, you know, translation from the German uh, was born during this period. And that seemed to, I mean, you know, there are arguments about the ways in which uh, Christianity and Islam are really descendants of Judaism and and to some degree with sort of Greek admixtures. Um, but uh, you know, in terms of the way in which this is framed temporally, you know, insofar as one wants to be strict about the timing, then these other developments kind of are left out. And it just seemed problematic to me. But it also seemed to me problematic to look at, you know, our world today exclusively through this, so to speak, idealist idealistic or idealist kind of uh, way of thinking about things. It seems to me that, um, you know, part of what gets us, a big part of what gets us to who we are today has to do with the enormous increases in productive capacity that came on the heels, essentially, of the Industrial Revolution. So maybe that gets us to the uh, the chart. I was very pleased with this chart that I managed to put together. I have often tried to do that sort of thing in other books, in other writings, and I haven't been very successful. But this one seemed to have certain kinds of neat uh, ways of breaking the periods down. So in terms of, uh, I think, what you were talking about, the sort of characteristic modes of thought, so the axial age is in you know those among those who discuss it you know it's often seen as a as a period that promoted ideas of altruism you know uh, universalistic moralities and things like that and the idea is that um, or at least some people have argued that this came about in part as a result of uh, greater prosperity in relative terms, in, in terms of what happened in the world before 1750, um, and that people were therefore freed up to think about things in a more moral kind of way. Um, but, you know, one thing that happens is that they um, – uh, they come to, um, you know, think about the world really in these more moral ways. And again, you know, this is a subject of considerable contention, I have to say, but that's kind of the argument of those who believe this. So, um, you know, the idea here is that in a certain sense, less is more, right? Those who are self-abnegating and altruistic are more come to be seen as more moral, than other people. And so this notion that less is more is a kind of, you know, characterization, you know, in certain ways of certain kinds of Christian morality, for example. Um, but in the second axial age, the material axial age, um, you know, the characteristic mode of thinking, it seems to me, is about production. And, uh, you know, the, the characteristic thinkers in that sense are people like Adam Smith and Karl Marx who try to figure out how do we produce more, how do we generate more prosperity, how do we uh, divide it up, you know, more equally, et cetera, et cetera, and put it to human purposes is, I suppose, Marx's real con concern. Um, so they're kind of, uh, you know, 
the characteristic mode of thinking in a certain sense is more, 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 not less is more, but more, more, more. And now I was thinking about how that contrasts with what you might think of as economic thinking, even just a century before, which was not about more, more, more. It was about making sure that I get a greater share of what is essentially finite. And while it might be, you know, a sense of getting more of that, but the idea is that in, in effect, that you're talking about wealth is static, you get, and within that short period of time, you're talking about, you know, Marx, Ricardo, and so forth, they are talking about more and more and more. You're absolutely right. Yes, yes. And, 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 you know, and indeed that happens. I mean, progress as an idea is, you know, I think generally thought to be a product in a certain sense of this period, because it was the first time that it was really, you know, happening on any significant scale in human history, at least in sort of material terms, right? So, uh, now, uh, the, uh, you know, the characteristic mode of thinking, you know, is connected, I think, to this notion of state. I mean, it's not as characteristic maybe as we need it to be, but it's an increasingly widespread notion that things have to be sustainable. And so, you know, that I characterize just, you know, using these terms as, you know, less is more. I mean, mm-hmm. the, 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 the more you can do with less, the better off you are. I mean, somebody just came out with a uh, report yesterday about uh, the diet that we need to eat in order for the planet to survive. And it, there's, uh, I hate to tell your listeners, uh, a hell of a lot less red meat involved uh, and, you know, a lot more sort of uh, vegetables. And so, you know, whether they're going to persuade people that, you know, we should all eat like this is uh, open to question, I suppose. But the, the point basically is, you know, less is more here. We would all be better off in terms of the production of our food if, you know, fewer resources were used in generating it. And, of course, I think everybody listening to this probably knows that, you know, producing red meat uh, – costs a lot of energy, costs a lot of in the way of resources. So basically, you know, all of this is, of course, a response to the finding, the the scientific consensus that climate change is real. It's happening now. It's not something that's down the road. And it's a product of our, you know, unprecedented, historically unprecedented ability to produce more stuff for people, which, you know, it basically has been a really good thing. And for much of the world, of course, that hasn't got the kind of prosperity that we have in the United States, um, you know, this is finally coming to them in China and India. Of course, those places have 40 or 45 percent of world population and so you know what's happening in those places obviously has enormous consequences for sort of global averages and for the global uh, situation more generally you mentioned that the first axial age can be described as an effect more in, in, in a sense and you def- you describe the material uh, axial age as more 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 and then when you get to the third axial age it's you, you in effect are talking about how it's about doing it smarter you know you're, we're now thinking yeah. uh, doing things thinking that produces thinking I was wondering if you could elaborate upon some examples of that that you've seen since the uh, p- that point at which you uh, define the break between second and third axial ages. Right. Well, 
again, the, the business about thinking is, you know, in the second actual age, there's this thinking about producing. Uh, and, you know, the concern was, was basically how do we have more stuff? How do we live longer? How do we live healthier, et cetera, et cetera? You know, we've done a lot in in that direction uh it hasn't diffused entirely around the world but we've moved a lot uh towards a direction of you know more prosperity since 1750 but as i said now we're sort of confronting this situation uh of uh environmental crisis really and so the question is uh you know how do we get that under control and the main mechanism is no not thinking about producing anymore but thinking that produces thinking that is uh creating these devices that you know regulate the temperature in your house so that it's cold you know or not burning a lot of whatever fuel while you're not there, but warms up and is nice and toasty, you know, before you get home. Now, I don't have all these devices, but pretty soon I suspect this is going to be standard equipment in houses. I mean, you have people like Jerry Brown in California mandating a, a sort of zero uh, emissions kind of world in California uh, in, you know, certainly my children's lifetime. I think it's 2040 was his deadline for that. So basically, um, you know, what's happening with contemporary technologies is they're, you know, oriented increasingly towards eliminating drudgery. That's an old story. Uh, but also towards, um, you know, making us smarter inhabitants of the earth and uh, reducing the uh, environmental footprint that we put out there uh, in order to kind of save ourselves from the kinds of, you know, climate change consequences that we've observed in the United States in the last year in California and in Houston and other places where people have had a very hard time uh, as a result, it seems, you know, not exclusively, but to a significant degree, uh, these are products of climate change. You are describing this in very uh, broad terms and, and your and your book is is observational and analytical. And yet I detect in it, especially in the end, there's this note of optimism. If we can use a model as predictive, is do you feel that the mental age is one that will have that same sort of, of, of benefit for the group the way that, say, the first two uh, axial ages did in various ways? Right. Well, I think that... Uh, you know, what can I say? The current administration in the United States is not on the ball or is actively, you know, working against what would be sensible policies in the face of uh, the consequences of climate change. But, you know, again, uh, contrary to their view of things, I think uh, the economic future is very much bound up with the environmental future. And uh, the more devices that we can generate to, you know, reduce the amount of fuel that's used, the amount of emissions that are produced, et cetera, et cetera, uh, I think the better off we're going to be. And, you know, people like Elon Musk, you know, are thinking to some degree, at least along these lines and um, developing technologies that are 
you know, reducing the amount of, of energy that they need in order to operate. And all of that seems to me essential. I mean, is it enough to address the problems that we are facing and going to be facing, that my kids are going to be facing? Uh, that's not, you know, necessarily clear. Um, but it does seem to me that some of the recent reports that have come out of not well to some degree Washington itself, but uh, the Internet Governmental Panel on Climate Change and other institutions that this is you know an urgent matter. It's not something we can put off till the future. Um, and I am optimistic that some of the kinds of universalistic moralities that, you know, some people associate with this moral original axial age uh, will help push us in that direction. I mean, you know, here's a case in which the president is, you know, manifestly not a self-sacrificing, uh, altruistic kind of guy. And he seems in a way like a, a, a kind of unsocialized being and does not seem to have been socialized into the morality of the, the, the moral axial age. So uh, it does make a difference whether somebody, you know, adheres to those kinds of ideas or not. And uh, so I, I do put in a plug for those. And I mean, I mentioned, you know, the Pope's uh, encyclical on climate change and the, our relationship to the earth. And I think that was a significant document that seems to have influenced at least some Catholics that I saw evidence of. Um, and so I think we all have to think about, you know, that we're all in this together and we need to do something about it or not so much myself anyway, uh, on the cusp of 60, but, uh, you know, my kids are definitely going to have to grapple with and deal with the consequences of. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Well, as it happens, I'm involved in a project on the social and political views of the new tech elite which basically seeks to make sense of the worldview of people like Elon Musk and to um, try and figure out, you know, I mean, it seems to me these are the people who now, in a certain sense, run the world, uh, the people who run Google and Amazon and Facebook and uh, Microsoft and Apple, and uh, their views are obviously going to be very influential. And, you know, I think what's kind of interesting about it is that a lot of these people came out of a kind of uh, culture, subculture uh, that promoted various ideas about making the world a better place. I mean, one hears that phrase around them a lot. And it seems to me, however, that in the last you know, year or so, certainly, uh, the image that they had of, you know, being bearers of gifts who brought us lots of new shiny things, uh, the bloom is off that particular rose. And, uh, you know, they're facing much more scrutiny, it seems to me, uh, from the society. And um, so I think that's a very interesting set of issues that need to be uh, scrutinized more closely. And, uh, you know, I think at some level we have to do a much better job than we've been uh, sort of leaning towards doing um, in terms of how we regulate these uh, technologies. And, I mean, a recent congressional hearing suggested that many of our representatives simply aren't, you know, sufficiently familiar with the technologies of the people that they're, you know, talking to. 
uh, to really do a decent job of regulating this. So I think there's a certain kind of lag that we're going to have to kind of catch up on uh, and all do a better job of discussing how exactly we adopt technologies. One doesn't want to squelch innovation. You know, obviously these innovations are often very useful. You and I are having a conversation. It's going to be recorded and sent out to a bunch of people who might want to hear it. And, you know, arguably this improves everyone's life. But uh, it's not necessarily clear that we want all the, you know, things that uh, Facebook and other uh, entities are putting out there. And so I think we have to figure out how to how to do a better job of regulating these things. So the book is uh, oriented basically to, to trying to figure out, uh, you know, how these, uh, the people who create this, in a way, this mental axial age, um, you know, how do they really think about the world and what do they want to do? It, it, it sounds like a fascinating book and a, and a natural fault, the idea of, of how we as a society come to terms with the you know th- with the changes that have been taking place in, in the mental axial age <laughs> exactly i hope so well john thank you very much for taking some time out of your day to speak with us i hope you have a wonderful day my pleasure thanks very much mark <laughs>